Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this, the third episode, we're going to cover episodes three and four of the original television series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. We're assuming that you're watching this series alongside us. So if you haven't seen the first two episodes of the show, and also if you haven't listened to the first two episodes of the podcast, I recommend you do both before listening any further. But for now, Human Instrumentality Podcast Unit 2, launch! So, episode 3 of Neon Genesis Evangelion begins pretty quickly with a little training sequence. Shinji's inside Unit 1, and he's getting ready for his next sortie with an angel, whenever that might be. And so the first thing that we see him learning is not only just how to use the weapons, he's armed this time with a machine gun, uh, but we are also informed of the battery life of the Evangelion units. They are hooked up to a power source if the... Eva gets separated from that power source. It either has five minutes of low capacity usage or a single minute of high capacity usage in order to survive. After this dose of world building, the story gets a little more mundane for a second, and we get a dose of Shinji in school, where we meet two of his classmates. Kensuke, uh, introduced as a you know a young teenage boy with a little camcorder and action figures of some of the military. Uh, weapons that we had seen in the previous two episodes. We also meet Toji, a sort of rougher, uh, more jock-type character who we learn pretty quickly uh, has a younger sister who was injured in the battle in the previous two episodes. So he's got a bone to pick with whoever the pilot of the Ava is. Little does he know, the newest student in class, Shinji Ikari, is that very same pilot. So then we get a brief scene of the classroom uh, discussing the previous damage to the ecology that had led us to the world that we are currently watching Ava in. We learned that the ice caps in Antarctica have melted due to what is being referred to as second impact and that humanity has bravely uh, resurfaced since this catastrophe. While this conversation is happening in class, Shinji accidentally uh, admits to the entire class through a sort of uh, social media of some kind on his laptop that he is in fact the Ava pilot. Uh, Toji does not take this well. As a matter of fact, Toji pulls your stereotypical high school bully move uh, and takes Shinji out to the playground and decks him. Twice. Fortunately for Shinji, well, I shouldn't say fortunately because it doesn't seem like Toji's really interested in hitting him a third time, but... Uh, this little bit of middle school drama is interrupted by the appearance of the fourth angel. And Ray and Shinji are summoned back to Nerve headquarters to fight it. Uh, at the same time, Kensuke and Toji are uh, shuffled into the evacuation centers uh, underneath the city itself, along with another character that we meet in uh, Shinji's class, the class rep, who doesn't get a lot of play in these episodes, but will come up more later. Shinji is sent out in Ava Unit 1 to battle the newest angel and does not do a great job. Uh, he does not do a great job, although it must be said, as I'm rewatching this, the angel doesn't do a particularly good job fighting him either. Uh, by accident, it manages to sever the umbilical cable uh, and 
make sure that the Evangelion is now running out of battery life. As it's running out of battery life and Unit 1 is uh, embedded into a hillside, Shinji discovers that Toji and Kensuke are right near his Evangelion, like have very nearly been crushed by it. Literally in between the fingers of the Ava unit. And this is because Kensuke, a determined military geek, has uh, dragged Toji along with him in an effort to view the Ava fighting the angel before he dies. Miraculously, uh, Misato, who's overseeing the operation combating the angel, doesn't decide to let Kensuke and Toji become casualties. She allows them inside the entry plug with Shinji. Uh, And with them all inside the entry plug, rather than retreat, Shinji uses the Evangelion's standard weapon, the progressive knife, uh, and just before the battery runs out, manages to stab Shamshiel, the fourth angel, in its core killing it. It should be noted that this is in direct violation to an order that Misato gives to Shinji as well. Uh, The next scene that we see is back at school, but this time it's been made clear that Shinji has not been to school in several days, and in fact, no one really knows where he is, which brings us to episode four. Episode four begins directly after episode three ends. It's almost a direct cut, uh, even though we find out there actually has been somewhat of a time jump. And in episode four, very simply, Shinji runs away. Most of the episode consists of him wandering aimlessly through Tokyo 3 and the hills outside of it, attempting to escape nerve. Well, it's a it's a bit more complicated than that. He sort of gets cold feet uh, multiple times, deciding to return home at the end of a train line. But then while walking back through the city, has somewhat of a panic attack of sort of what we would probably call a... Uh, an episode of PTSD while in the center of the city, um, and then runs out to the countryside where he happens to find Kensuke uh, doing a bit of uh, military reenactment uh, out in the woods by himself. Shinji and Kensuke spend the evening together reforging their friendship, and then in the morning, the two awake to find themselves surrounded by men in black. Uh, these are nerve agents that are there to return Shinji to nerve headquarters. When there, he is confronted by Masato, who has been worrying about him uh, in cutaways throughout the entire episode. Masato confronts Shinji about his uh, approach to piloting the Eva, about whether he's doing it with the right intentions. Is he there uh, doing it sincerely or simply because other people pressure him to do it? Shinji comes to the conclusion that he would rather not pilot the Eva and is, has all of his nerve privileges revoked and is shipped off to take a train ride to who knows where. He never does board that train, however. Outside the train, he is confronted by Toji, who decides that before Shinji leaves, Shinji owes him at least one punch in the face to make up for the beating he got in the previous episode. Shinji lets him have it, and then decides, sort of at the last minute, being an indecisive character, that he would rather stay on as the pilot of Unit 1. Simultaneously, Masato comes to a realization that perhaps taking the uh, hard and strict approach to helping Shinji along in this process was not the correct approach, rushes to the train station to see if Shinji is still there. Uh, Eventually, they see each other one more time. Both 
to their own surprise, Masato says, welcome home. And Shinji gladly accepts that he is back home again. And that's the end of episodes three and four. So as you can tell, these are much lighter on plot compared to the first two episodes. Uh, I think that this is definitely an intentional move to kind of slow the pace of things down. Um, We get another big angel fight very quickly in episode three. And then episode four kind of introduces us to another way that the show can work, which is as more of a moody character study. And I think it's a really bold move that the show does this so quickly in its run. And I, I think that for fans of the show, this episode stands out for that particular reason. Episode four is... I'm of two minds about episode four. So maybe we should discuss episode three first. Certainly, yes. Um, this episode does a lot of work in setting up the world of the show. We mentioned that briefly as we were doing the plot synopsis, but a lot of it is actually done in the background. One of the things that is not as immediately apparent if you happen to be watching the show on Netflix with subtitles is how much information is conveyed in the background text and background dialogue. For example, uh, as Masato and Shinji are getting ready at the beginning of the day, you hear a uh, TV or a radio, it's a radio, uh, in the other room uh, talking about the weather, uh, basically setting up the eternal summer setting in a much more clearly defined way, something that hadn't really been made clear in the uh, previous two episodes. At the same time, you have the, uh, the scene in the classroom itself where you learn about the history of Second Impact in a way that, if you're not paying attention to the background sound, might slide right by you. But also, on a much more human scale, this is the first time that you see the actual citizens of the city that Nerve is fighting to protect. Yeah. Episode three does a few really important things. First of all, it it's, begins to introduce the outer ensemble, uh, including Toji and Kensuke. Um, there's other characters who've actually been already introduced who will get character arcs about on the same level of them. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the three uh, people who man the computers inside Nerve. But for the most part, Toji and Kensuke, or like we could just call them the boys, right, uh, are, are meant to be Shinji's sort of gang of miscreants that he hangs out with. This is a trope, just like being in middle school is a common anime trope. It's in Sailor Moon, it's in Yu Yu Hakusho, it's in Bleach, uh, in a way it's in Naruto, it's in like everything. And so in some ways, this episode is about really embedding Evangelion in the standard anime of the time milieu. That's definitely true. But what I love is that it's not there uh, arbitrarily or just for the sake of having it. Because Shinji's ability to relate to other people and his ability to connect to other people, it's an idea that gets brought up that is, I think you would agree, probably crucial to understanding the show, which is the hedgehog's dilemma. So it's not only a way of grounding Evangelion in the genre tropes of the time, but also a way of hammering home its key themes. Here are Shinji's classmates, his peers. How can he overcome his reluctance to connect to other people 
in order to form relationships with his peer group, which I think is sort of one of the overarching themes of these two episodes. That's absolutely right. The other thing that happens is really quickly it establishes the human cost of the Evangelions in the form of like Toji's sister, who I'm not certain if you ever really see. You certainly don't see her in this episode, but she's sort of uh, Schrodinger's uh, Schrodinger's younger sister. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but she's really pivotal in that in that she establishes that people die every time he goes inside the Evangelion. Um, that's not so uncommon in anime in in mobile suit gundam they do talk about the human cost uh even in the original series which is notably more kid friendly than compared to some of the later ones um in zeta gundam it's almost monotonous how much they talk about the human cost of robot war Mm -hmm. however Unlike in Zeta Gundam to me, they use the human cost as a way to peer inside Shinji's decision-making processes. Um, Or to be more specific, his complete inability to make a decision when he's not literally inside the Evangelion. Right. It's What I think makes this so great is that we follow along both uh, parallel trajectories, you know? Because the episode begins with Shinji in a you know training circumstance, we're we're learning about the rules of the show at the same time that Shinji is. So we're kind of inherently going to empathize and relate to Shinji's perspective. But what I think makes the show th- this episode work is that we're immediately given a, a view into what motivates Toji as well. He's not just a high school bully; he's someone who has actual human stakes in the real action of the show. He has a lot of complicated feelings about things that we've already seen and have this relationship with. So we're not just seeing this sort of like fake adversity for the sake of it to create drama, but it's actually tying in directly with, as Shinji is learning how to operate the robot, he's coming to a greater understanding of what that actually means to the world that he exists in. You know? I think that's right. Uh we should pause for a second and talk about Toji and Kensuke. Yes, uh, I'd love to. Toji's probably the more important character in episode three. So I just want to talk about him for a second. Things things that I, I didn't notice when I first watched this series. The character design. His track suit. He, he, he's dressed like... Um, I hope this isn't an insensitive thing to say, like a Hollywood stereotype of an Eastern European mobster. He's just in great sneakers and and a shitty tracksuit. Yeah, it looks like he could be squatting and smoking a cigarette for sure. That's exactly right. He's he's portrayed as kind of a jock, but also in a weird way, he's sort of immature. I, I, like, I love the long scene where they pan over the urinals and he and Kensuke are both uh, in the men's room. And you see that Kensuke's got his, you know, peeing through his fly and, and Toji's got his pants down. Not like totally two ankles all the way down, but he's got his like pants down. And they seem to be saying some, I'm not sure exactly what they're trying to say with that, but I'm pretty convinced they're trying to say something about him there 
I think I, I have some ideas about this. Toji's accent is noticeably more nasal and more sort of whiny than the rest of the accents of the, the main characters in the show. And please, someone correct me if I'm, if I'm off base with this, but I've noticed in other anime that this is kind of typically considered to be sort of like a, like, more, like, uh, this is the opposite of a posh accent. It's like more of a working class background. It's more unrefined. He's He's sort of... I think there really is supposed to be sort of a Toji is um, doesn't really have like good manners and doesn't really appear to be from like good stock in terms of like the social structure. I, that's at least my interpretation of the character. I get the sense that he's supposed to be sort of uh, sort of a hick or at least not particularly well off. I think you're on to something and there is more class commentary in this series now that I'm watching it as an adult than I noticed when I was a teenager. Um, in the next episode of the podcast, I'm going to have a whole diatribe about this, but I do think there is something to the idea that Toji is maybe from the stereotype would be the wrong side of the tracks. Meanwhile, Kensuke's Mr. Gadgets He's got a VCR recorder, which like at the time would have been like a fairly expensive gadget for a kid, even in Japan, I think. He's got this like toy of the gunship that that the third angel killed in episode one. He's a whole nother kettle of fish. It's it's made pretty clear that he's not only tech savvy, but is also has a particular interest in the military. Like when Shinji is ex- trying to explain to the other classmates, like the specs of the Ava, um, this is a, one of my favorite, like little filmmaking moments in the episode. It cuts away to Kensuke on one side, you know, furiously taking notes and, but, and sitting outside of the group of students as a result. And then it cuts to the other side of Toji reacting like with, you know, in a, in a less classy anime, there'd be like steam coming out of his ears. You can just see him like fuming over how, like he's building up the energy to you know beat Shinji's ass after class, but it does this great job of even then differentiating those two students from the rest of the student body and kind of letting you know like these are characters you want to pay attention to going forward. There is something here that didn't mean anything to me when I was a teenager watching this, but now I think does need to be commented on, uh, and I'm not certain that it's an accident either. Kensuke on first watch to me seemed like a pretty almost boring or innocuous character. In retrospect, now watching it as an adult, especially in the light of uh, the various sexually frustrated male school shootings that have happened, particularly in the United States, there's something a little dark about Kensuke about his obsession with the military, the fact that when he's not in school, what he'd rather do is go out into a field and play soldier and play not only the guy getting shot, but the guy like trying to motivate himself. Um, Coupling that with the kind of lewd comments that he and Toji make about Misato when she's not there, uh, there is something... I think there's something about Kensuke that does hint at like a a capability for violence inside of him and perhaps inside of everybody. Mm -hmm. That's a a really interesting idea. And it's funny. I would say that that would have been my 
impression of the character prior to my most recent rewatch. That was kind of what I remembered of him was like the obsession with like the military and war games and all of that kind of like nerdy otaku stuff that I think is really is central to his character. But what I was kind of most surprised by rewatching the show is he's pretty emotionally literate for a kid. Like he's very insightful the way that he like convinces Toji to go on the the quest to look at the Ava with him is by putting this sort of moral conundrum in front of Toji being like you punch the guy therefore it's your responsibility to watch him battle a new like the next angel and then in the next scene when he's talking to Shinji he and also the the the, the main scenes that feature him in the the following episode he calmly talks to Shinji about the the situation of the war. Like, yeah, it's aspirational. He wants to pilot the Eva, but the minute that he's faced with the, the actual like force of nerve when they come to pick Shinji up, the way he explains it to Toji at least is very level headed. You know, he says like, "Oh, this there was the difference between like me." playing around with toys and the actual like nerve forces that show up like he's not living in as much of a fantasy world as i assumed that he would be coming in to watch the show again i was at least that's my take away from it but i also totally see how you can read him the other way that's fair i found the conversation he had with shinji kind of interesting i made a note to myself where i said you could take the exact same lines of dialogue he has and shoot it differently and have it be a very menacing scene. Uh, but that's, that's not what they lean into. Mm-hmm. I agree with you there that that's, they're not, I don't think they're trying to underline any sort of negative judgment about Kensuke, but I'm saying now in 2019, looking at it as an adult, there's, there's a thread there for me. Totally. I think that that's like a very fair way to read that character. And I think, particularly from an American audience point of view in 2019, it's hard to not have those same kind of thoughts. Like just as an example, the opening scene where, you know, Shinji is learning how to use the rifle to shoot at the angels in this sort of simulation. He has this dead eyed look on him that to me, like now watching it, like really, really disturbed me. You know, it's, I guess somewhat reminiscent of video games, but to me it reminded me of like, the initiation process for like child soldiers and shit like that. You know, it's, you've got this kid who's like being trained to kill and you can literally see the life, like lose it. You can see the light going out of his eyes as he's doing it. Shinji has a few creepy moments in these two episodes. The training sequence is one. The flashback to when Masato's giving him a, from my perspective, a pretty professional and gentle dressing down he acts like a total sociopath his his willingness to lean into the violence of the evangelians uh as as a force to give his life meaning it's wild to me that they introduce that in the fourth episode of this tv series of a 26 episode tv series like in in an american show You'd wait till the end to address that moral problem, and the character would have to grow into being someone who's enamored of violence. In Evangelion, it happens right away, and the rest of the of the episode is people talking him out of it. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. 
it's kind of immediately real like recognizes that that type of character is just a mask to hide a deeper pain you know like this is a really that's a really cogent point about a lot of Mer- american media is that it sort of assumes that like becoming this like hardened soldier is a interesting character arc on its own but it's not like shinji immediately jumps there because that's exactly where a 14 year old would jump is to just be like well i guess this is my life now and i just have to accept it and as long as i'm following orders and you know fighting the angels i'm the only one who can do it so i can kind of do it at whatever i want and i think you're right to say that the way that Masato is dressing him down is entirely professional, but that's almost one of the great contrasts between how Masato thinks this should go down and how it actually should, is that she's treating it like a job and not realizing that there's actually like a personal cost that Shinji is feeling. You know, you can't just treat it like an employee. Like this is someone who's like going through trauma every time he steps into that Eva and you've got to take a more personal tact if you want it to actually work and i think that's sort of the key to masato's arc in these two episodes and she's his caregiver at at this point J- just mm-hmm. to remind you I-, I took a note gendo's his father and gendo is a bad dad but let's underline how bad of a dad he's not even there for his son's second angel fight when the last time he passed out and lost control he only shows up at the very end of the fourth episode and still treats his son like absolute dirt. Yeah, the only time we see Gendo in this entire uh, two-episode sequence is basically him uh, authorizing, like, putting his handcock on the idea of Shinji leaving Nerve. It's not even something that he has to stop on an elevator to think about. It's just one more item off the agenda for the day completely just writing Shinji off. There's no human connection between them at this point. Which is sort of interesting because like ostensibly the entire like premise, the the force behind the premise of the show and the force behind the premise of Nerve is fighting the angels, right? Like you'd think it would be more important to him than than just getting rid of like his irritating kid. Yeah, I mean, Gendo... Gendo is a very eye on the prize guy uh, in ways that the show will detail to great lengths, but he's got a very uh, efficiency minded way of going about it. Even like he's all about results, not about process whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but he's barely in the episode. So we should focus more on the, uh, the characters that we do have. And I actually, I really like that idea of the, the violence that you brought up that Shinji displays because it's not just the sociopathy that he has in the sort of uh, the meeting after the fight, but in the angel battle itself, we see a, sh- a side of Shinji that we had at this point had no idea existed. That's totally right. He at the end when he's running out of battery life and he's fighting Shamshiel, that's the name of the fourth angel, by the way, is Shamshiel. We, sh- we should pause here for one second and just point out all the angels have names and these names are taken from the Kabbalah, which is a Gnostic sect of Judaism. Uh, probably the, the best way that a lay person would have any sort of familiarity with the Kabbalah would be that Madonna practices Kabbalah or did at one point in time and made it a point to talk about it in a bunch of interviews. This is the Madonna with the red bracelet era, if 
you're a Madonna fanboy like I am. Uh, for the rest of us who are maybe a bit less uh, literate in Madonnaology, uh, Kabbalah is essentially the like mysticism uh, side of Judaism. It would be the best way to describe it. If you're into theology at all, it's it's sort of the the, the mystical, esoteric, uh, less about like concrete answers and more about sort of like expanding like brainwave stuff. You know, it would be to put it in meme terminology. That's the best way to look at it. And so it's got a lot of these very arcane names and uh, and symbols that will show up throughout the show. What when Shinji's fighting Shamshiel? Uh, he he sort of has to will himself back into the berserker mode that Unit One used to beat Satchiel in the last episode, and he can't quite really do it. It's it's sort of funny to watch him try and fail to become a mindless killing machine because the, the second Shamshiel's dead, he's there in the entry plug, absolutely quivering. The thing that makes that whole sequence so powerful is you Shinji immediately is knocked on his ass by by the angel and only by convincing himself once uh Toji and Kensuke are in the entry plug with him you get the the you know mustn't run away refrain that Shinji will sort of treat as a mantra throughout the entire show we're gonna that's gonna come up a lot and even if you really think about it it comes up in the very next episode you get sort of the action version of that idea and the character-based version of that same idea over the course of these two episodes. And he, you know, you see him willing his way into victory by, you know, forcing the knife in as the battery is draining out of the Ava. And it's not exactly a, uh, there's not much finesse to, to Shinji's approach to defeating the angel. It's all force of will. And it, you, you see him, as you mentioned, quivering and crying and just spent entirely. And this is a really important moment not just for the viewer, but for Kensuke and Toji, who are now in the plug with him and get to see him at how they get to see exactly how much it takes to defeat the angels. And it marks this turning point in Toji's mind where previously he had thought, well, Shinji's a jerk who got my sister sent to the hospital. But now, having seen the toll that these fights take on the Ava pilots. He, he changes his tune very quickly. It's a really beautiful sequence. I, I see that sequence as, and actually the Shamshiel fight in general, even though it's, it's not quite so iconic as the Satchiel fight from the second episode, every frame and every move in that fight is burned into the back of my skull and is for a lot of people. It's obvious that the team spent a lot of time on that first fight in, in, contrast i think the shamshiel fight is maybe not quite so well done but the finesse or lack of finesse in the fight scene is one of those ways that the series is confounding tropes right because in a lot of ways episode three is is uh the first proper episode of the show right like in america episodes one and two would be a two-parter there were the pilot right and so episode three the one with shamshiel would be the the first quote unquote production episode and it's a pretty standard sci-fi series episode it introduces a character it introduces a character problem it resolves that character problem by the end and it does so using a monster of the week, right? Mm-hmm. And and the show doesn't always hew toward sci-fi tropes, but the angels in general do function 
sort of as monsters of the week. For some context, the idea of a monster of the week TV series is very, very old, and it's an American idea. The first Monster of the Week TV series was The Outer Limits. Ian, have you ever seen The Outer Limits? Um, I feel like I've caught episodes here and there on like Sunday mornings as a kid, like just channel flipping, but it wasn't something that I watched with any real intention. Sure. The Outer Limits is good. It's not as good as its obvious inspiration, The Twilight Zone. Uh, but basically what made the outer limits different was the idea of the monster of the week. They in the production budget had a budget for every episode for something called the bear as in bear suit. And the dictate from the producer was you can do whatever you want as far as sci-fi goes, but every episode needs to have a fucking bear in it. And you see episode three is like Evangelion, like putting itself in the in this long storied beloved tradition of popular science fiction entertainment, but it confounds it in some ways. Uh, and I've, I've got a few of those ways for you. Absolutely. Hit me. First things first. Shamshiel nearly beats unit one by accident. It, it, it's weapon are these laser whips, these like energy whips. Um, and it sort of looks like it's having fun, like whipping unit one around like a rag doll. It, it's played for laughs, I think. And in so doing that, accidentally sent like severs the umbilical cable and sends it into this battery problem. Uh, it's not clear how Shamshiel is going to burrow down into the geo front and complete its mission. But literally, the angel could have won by just stopping right there and floating away. Like, all it needed to do was wait five minutes for Unit 1 to run out of batteries. It's just as incompetent as Shinji is in that respect. Right. It just has better instincts <laughs> is basically what it comes down to. Like, it, similar to your point about the previous Angel, is you sort of get the sense that there's not a lot of planning. There's not a lot of strategy to their approach. There are They are much more animalistic at this phase. We should also talk about the design of this particular angel because it gets to, I think, something that astute viewers would probably pick up after a few angels of design. But I don't know, based on, you know, the first angel with its like enormous shoulder pads and like skinny lower body and then this thing. Can I just stop you right there? Shamshill looks like a huge dick. It looks like it looks like a big penis. Right. It's supposed to look, quote unquote, like the Wikipedia page says, like an arthropod. It looks like a fucking penis. It, it, there's no subtlety here. So the the more elevated point that I was attempting to make before being brought immediately back down to earth by Joseph is that there's a sort of hyper masculine energy to the angels. And it's never made more clear than it is with uh, with this giant floating laser tentacle dicked anthropod this is almost like the most maybe that the series flexes the penis fight thing the measuring dick contest that that this fight almost literally is because here's another one of those ways that evangelion is like embeds itself back in the history of popular sci-fi anime and then confounds it this is the point in the episode at the end where you'd expect uh, unit one to whip out its ultimate weapon that can blow up its enemy in one hit that probably also looks like a huge dick 
Um, I'm thinking about all the Gundams have Buster cannons, uh, and Voltron has the big sword. Uh, they also do this in Power Rangers, which is not anime, but comes from a similar science fiction tradition. So you'd expect, okay, the first time you're watching this show when it's airing in Japan, you're like, okay, unit one, they're going to send up a sword and it's going to cut this thing in half with a sword, right? No, it's got a little hunting knife. And that has to be a joke. <laughs> it sort of, it works as one, definitely. I mean, clearly, to Shinji's credit, it gets the job done in this particular case. But yeah, the, the sort of dinkiness of the progressive knife, the fact that it is, it's understated compared to the type of weapon design that we see a lot of times in this, uh, this show coming up. Yeah, it's hard not to think that there's something a bit What's the opposite of compensating? Sort of revealing it, revealing about the progressive knife in a way, you know, <laughs> or at least it's a joke on at Shinji's expense to a certain extent. I think part of the point of this series is every time that one of Shinji or or the other children, Ray uh, and any other Ava pilots that may or may not appear, uh, is that piloting the Evangelians doesn't actually make them stronger people; it makes them weaker people it like is traumatizing right we've already mm -hmm. talked about that and to me the progressive knife is and also like fighting a giant laser whipped dick is this way of emasculating shinji like these these the way that they traumatize him is having his father send him out into these life-threatening situations and these life-threatening situations are like really undercut his masculinity in front of his friends. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a really solid read on it, especially in the early goings when it's just Shinji alone. And the metaphor will get more complicated once the other Ava pilots get involved. But for now, I think that, especially in these first two episodes, is entirely fucking real. You've got a note here about materialism in these episodes that I'd like to touch on because I think that's a really interesting part, especially of episode four if we want to start transitioning into talking about that episode we can start talking about episode four it's so one of the interesting things about these episodes is they have a grand episode title and then sort of a subtitle that comes in after the midway commercial break um and the midway commercial break title well actually episode four the mid-break commercial title is the main title um but the initial title of the sh of this episode is like the phone that never rings these episodes are often fixated on little objects. And as you noted before, it manifests that through like focusing on household appliances or mundane items and asking you to get something deep about a character from that. That's what I mean by materialism. Mm -hmm. The phone is sort of like a structuring device, particular for episode three, because it's one of the first things that we have early on. Masato buys Shinji this cell phone that he's supposed to use to talk to his classmates but no one has called him until the very end of the episode when after it's clear that he's not coming to school anymore and toji is feeling this heavy weight of shame and guilt for having punched him and have having not considered the toll that was that shinji had been undertaking as a pilot attempts to call shinji's phone and doesn't reach anyone it's a really really bleak ending to the episode but it's a that is a really great little visual representation 
of that fundamental problem of not being able to connect with other people. I really like the fact that that episode is sort of organized around the phone call. It's planted very early on, and then that being the ending is just like really ties all the themes together for that episode. I can think of another interesting example uh, to me. There's a scene where Misato's having a conversation with Ritsuko about Shinji. So the episode doesn't pass the Bechdel test, but it does at least have Ritsuko and Misato talking a lot. And in it, there's a long or, or fairly long close up of Ritsuko's cigarette ashtray. It's just overflowing with her cigarettes. And all of her cigarette butts have like this bright red lipstick ring around them. And you never see Ritsuko without lipstick or with smeared lipstick when she's working at her computer. It's as if it's trying to say like her facade is infinite. She will never run out of lipstick. It's impossible to get through to her skin almost. And her, her dyed blonde hair hints at that too, because my understanding is that in the 90s in Japan to have dyed blonde hair would be very unusual. One of the things I really appreciate is how much the show, it's not that she's entirely blonde. They really do make it, it's not anime hair, you know? You can tell that it's been dyed. And that's compared to, you know, Ray, who has this incredibly, you know, blue, unnatural hair color that no one remarks upon whatsoever. The show does take pains to make you consider the, the appearance that Ritsuko is trying to present to the world and how much of it is sort of a a self-presentation machine. And also the fact that she, I, I like the character detail that she just, you know, chain smokes while at the computer. I feel like that's maybe a bit of a trope when it comes to hackers, but any of the sort of computer nerds that I know have always been pretty heavy smokers. So it feels very real in that way. It does feel real. I, it's also interesting that Ritzko's important and symbolically rich and has a lot of good lines, but Ritzko's not a main character of the series. Uh, but this scene, you know, when in this scene where we're establishing the cigarettes and her infinite, imperfect facade, she's the one who delivers the title of episode four, which is in a weird way, the thesis statement for the show. Uh, She delivers this idea borrowed from the philosopher Schopenhauer about the hedgehog's dilemma. And more or less the idea behind the hedgehog's dilemma is that um, this is, by the way, biologically false. Uh, But is this idea that it's difficult for hedgehogs to mate because the closer they get to one another, the more they hurt one another with their protruding spines, right? Uh, And so the only way that they can mate is to expose their weak, soft underbellies to one another. Uh, It's interesting that idea is being introduced by a character who obviously has to put up a barricade of like, blonde hair and lipstick between her and her best friend yeah i think that that's very telling in the way that the the show is being made you know um it's one of the little subtle things that like you know you you learn so much when you're re-watching a show like this this is sort of like the the real high watermark of like what a good show is compared to a bad one is the fact that it matters who's delivering this idea and it says something about the character and we're learning contradictory elements at the same time. So we can suddenly learn that uh, Ritsuko knows this, this hedgehog's dilemma, because she is also suffering from it very clearly in the way that she is presenting herself. Like, it's it's just a fucking great show, man. <laughs> it's I'm so always good. blown away by it. It's it's weird because I, I actually think this is one of, in a weird way, one of the weaker episodes of the show but it's obviously like the fulcrum of the storyline you're talking specifically about episode four yeah i i don't i don't particularly find episode four pleasant to watch 
and maybe it's not supposed to be. It's kind of fun that they like, here's this character driven, very quiet episode that comes right after your first formulaic episode of the show. Like it, it, the show like refuses to give you any sort of rhythm. Yeah. I mean, I, I will agree that it's, it's not an episode that I'd ever put on absent of watching the show as a whole, um, which there are some, uh, there's a handful of later episodes that I feel like I just sort of enjoy watching because of the mechanics of them. Um, this one is a mood piece and it's entirely, you know, I know that Joseph, that you'll appreciate this. This to me is, it, it's the same way that like Metallica structure their albums where you get like, you get the ballad on the fourth track, like every single time, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's just what needs to happen. in Ava is like, you've got like all this like big plot, heavy pilot of the first two episodes you've got another episode that establishes yes we are going to be doing monster of the week stuff but first let's take a break and actually assess where we are like let's have like a heart to heart here's how we actually feel about all this i i have a very different relationship with episode four based on how much it got like reinterpreted on the internet (laughs) like i almost think that this episode there's so much of it that you would see just like around on like anime tumblers or just sort of like the emo sphere or any of this sort of like really emotional kind of like lonely teen stuff this episode is like just straight uncut pure tumblr you know not tumblr porn but you know what i'm getting at like this is crack for for tumblr kids tumblr porn as opposed to porn on tumblr Precisely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, of course it is. This is this is. It's not the most emo episode of the show, but if I don't know if uh, if that was like a thing you were into, uh, this this show rides that vibe really hard. It also rides some of the things about the emo vibe that disconcert me. The scene about the hedgehog's dilemma happens right after Shinji's alone in a movie theater. Uh, watching a movie about the second impact uh, and he's seeing two older teenagers kind of like make out in the movie theater and it obviously makes him deeply uncomfortable and there's like a charitable interpretation of that and there's a not charitable interpretation of that and this series I think maybe to its credit doesn't let him break one way or the other uh all the way like shinji has his purely purely emotional human moments and he has his in retrospect fucking incel moments and you can't get one without the other yeah i think that's absolutely a fair read on that scene i think that going back to our sort of uh, the conversation we had the previous episode about shinji's sexuality you could read that another way so far in the content, I, I also like 100% agree that there is something resentful is the energy that I would say that is being shown the way like Shinji's like sort of like bristling to um, this like teenage hookup that's happening in the movie theater definitely has a sense of like repulsion to it. You know, he he's not at a place where he can understand why that's a totally normal thing to happen and takes a certain kind of umbrage with it. But the way I look at it is like there's just sort of it it feeds into the general sense that Shinji is just kind of disconnected from people and doesn't really know how to relate to other people. And so he's in this moment where he's already thrown to the winds and no longer has a home by his own choice and sees two other people actually having 
um, a real connection or at least like a movie theater hookup is as real as that can be. Who knows? You know, but I think that his negative reaction comes less from a sort of the sexual element of it and more just from it like highlighting a lack of emotional connection in his life. At least that's how I read it now. I think the other readings are totally fair as well. I, I, I can't not read it somewhat sexually after the episode where he gets emasculated by having to kill a giant dick with a little knife. That's entirely fair. I cannot, again, I cannot dispute that read. I, I just wanted to present the case for the other side of it. Here, here we go. Here's going to be the rest of the series, right? Here's Ian talking about emo music and the internet and, and emotional distance and me talking about God and giant dicks. Uh... <laughs> well, there's another cool thing that's happening in that particular scene, which is another example of the show kind of explaining the world in the background of another scene is it's sort of startling to see that there would be making like blockbuster, like Godzilla style movies about second impact. But I love <laughs> the dialogue of that movie is terrific because it's so overwrought compared to the kind of dialogue that would be happening in like any other sort of blockbuster. Like it's really poetic and like it's it's just a really cool little writing detail. I'm sure they had a lot of fun making that fake, fake movie for like the one scene that they had it in. I think that dialogue's so important. I think I think that's 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 one of Hidekiano's like great meta commentaries is that dialogue, right? Because mm-hmm. he's sort of in this fictional world, he, it, you're asking yourself, why would you make a blockbuster about a Nash international tragedy? And why would you make it so fucking cheesy? Meanwhile, he's making this series where one of its main influences is obviously Godzilla. And it takes you, which is now like an esteemed art movie, right? The, the Criterion Collection loves it. It's like the original 1954 Gojira is now like held up as like maybe one of the great films ever made, period. And it's a cheesy fucking metaphor for a national tragedy. Mm-hmm. And, and here he is responding to it in kind. And while he's doing it, I mean, like, isn't it ridiculous that I'm doing this? I think it's ridiculous, too. Here we go. <laughs> is there anything else from episode four? It's, it's it's a tough episode to talk about, honestly. Like, so much of it is mood-based that it's hard to dig into a lot of, like, real specifics. But is there anything else about that episode that you want to address? Because I know that it's a crucial turning point emotionally, but... Uh, is are there any other themes that you want to bring to the table when talking about episode four? Because I feel like I can go on forever about the sort of like emo side of things, but I'm curious about your read on on the rest of it. Uh, one thing that I think is pretty critical in episode four. This is also another classic sci-fi trope, right? Uh, but episode four sort of introduces nerves footmen, the the men in black, even the arrangement of the men in black seems like a callback to Gendo's very strange conference call with Sele in episode two. And that's your first and second hint really driving it home that the organization that Shinji works for, which his father's a representative of, may not have not even, we know they don't have his best interest at heart. We don't know whose best interest they have at heart at all in an american show this would be a huge part of his like internal conflict is like what am i doing working for this government organization that may be trying to destroy mankind or do something evil i don't know shinji doesn't even think about it um and i'm not certain if that if that is like 
a good thing or maybe a subtle memorandum on his character, actually. Like, as I rewatched it, I was kind of wondering if Hideki Anna was writing this series thinking, man, he's really oblivious to, like, on an international political scale, what he's doing. Yeah, I think that that's entirely true of, like, Shinji, I think, is very much caught up in himself. He's very concerned, like to the point of this, these two episodes, he's extremely concerned about what other people want him to do um, and what he owes other people. He's so obsessed with these kind of like minor problems of ego and um, resp- like smaller social responsibilities that he doesn't really have the, the capacity to consider the larger political issues that happen to be implicated by what he's doing with his life. I, I think that the show is very clever about making sure that we see more of the world than just what Shinji sees of it but anytime we are viewing the world through Shinji's eyes he's never really considering the biggest of pictures he's always like kind of concerned with what's directly in front of him and what's affecting him emotionally and I get why that pisses some people off but I think that allows the show to be the way that it is and I think the show is pretty self-aware about that fact no, I think it's interesting. That's one of the interesting things about it is you're, you've got this main character who's caught up in this grand international religious post-apocalyptic plot, and he's only really capable of dealing with the world in an intimate emotional scale, even when he's fighting a giant dick with laser hands. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think... The facelessness of nerve. I mean, we talked about it briefly with uh, with Kensuke's character too, where it sort of serves to put into perspective exactly how uh, impotent and ineffectual all of Kensuke's like military war games are in the face of like actual military power. But it also just serves to show that like Shinji just doesn't have a lot of control over his life. Like even when he, you can tell that he has second thoughts about boarding the train. The nerve agents are just like stop being such a pain in our ass like get on the goddamn train we don't care like none of this matters to them at all um it's just a really good way of sort of reinforcing the actual where power actually lies in the show i think that's completely correct uh i think we'd be remiss it seems like we're getting to the end of these two episodes which is probably good because even though i i don't love episodes three and four and i respect them very much Episodes five and six are some of my favorite in the series, and I can't wait to talk with you about those. Uh, but but before we get there, uh, I think we'd be remiss not to mention cicadas. Oh, yeah. Um, part of the confirmation of the setting that comes in these episodes, kind of clarifying that an eternal summer idea that we brought back. Uh, the You may have noticed anytime the show takes like any sort of breath at all, the sound that fills that space is cicadas, endless amounts of cicadas, shots of power lines and cicadas, shots of empty city streets and cicadas. The cicadas are everywhere. And in their, you know, one night sleepover, Kensuke and Shinji directly talk about the cicadas. They're talking about how the cicadas are coming back. Life is returning. So in a weird way, the, the cicadas are almost like a sign of hope in the show, but they're a constant audio mo- motif in Ava. And it's it's one of the things that like anytime a friend of mine who isn't like anime fluent watches the show, they always bring up the cicadas. It always happens. The other thing about the cicadas that I noticed on my rewatch, and I, I've got to give credit to my 
poor suffering significant other who does not enjoy anime and has to sit through me watching this in the main room but something she pointed out the uh audio loop for the cicadas is very short <laughs> so not only are you constantly bombarded with the sound of cicadas trying to mate oh look there's some subtext with you the cicada calls a mating call Ah, constant, unfulfilled desire. But it's a very short loop of constant, unfulfilled desire that this show's just that the show is bombarding you and the main characters with constantly. That has to be intentional. I can imagine someone there when they're making the audio designer for the show, Hideki Anno comes and goes, Good. Good. I like it. <clears throat> can you shorten the MP3 loop for the cicadas, please? Thanks. The bugs need to be hornier in this scene. <laughs> more petulant. More petulant bugs. Yeah, Ava, the show's so horny that even the bugs want to fuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and with that note... <laughs> And on that bombshell. Okay. Yes, we will be back to talk about what I think most people can agree is are two of the best episodes of the entire show. I'm just excited to rewatch uh, episodes five and six for myself personally because they fucking rule. Um, so we will be back to talk about those two episodes in the following episode of the Human Instrumentality Podcast. You can, in the meantime, hit us up on social media. You can like and subscribe. You can rate us on the iTunes store. All of the usual sort of podcast engagement that everyone desires so much. And uh, until next time, I promise uh, I will bring more fan service next time. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at anotheravapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.